scripture lesson today, and the first comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now we're going to skip over to the 11th chapter, and uh, just by way of explanation, Paul sounds very defensive, and this is what we're going to read right here, and almost uh, arrogant. But you have to understand, he was under constant attack by others. Remember, he's the only apostle that was not chosen by Jesus. He never met Jesus. So people were constantly questioning his authority to be an apostle. And it's in response to that kind of questioning that he writes these words. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whenever anyone dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from those things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I do not lie. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. You know, uh, sportscasters during the halftime of a football game, they have to figure out all kinds of things to talk about to uh, fill the time there, give the players some time to rest. And uh, one time I remember they were talking, the topic was, who's the greatest rusher ever in the NFL? The greatest running back. And they were going through different ones, and they came to Walter Payton who was uh, second uh, most yards gained, a long career, averaged 4.6 yards per carry. 
And um, one of the guys said to him, you know, in his career total, he rushed over nine miles. And the other guy said, yeah, and every 4.6 yards, somebody knocked him down. You ever felt like uh, that was your life? You're running along and boom, something comes into your life and just knocks you down. And you get up and you start going again and something else comes, knocks you down. Maybe you felt that like that physically, that just as you recovered from one problem, another one came, or emotionally, or a variety of ways. In fact, you could really say, literally, that life itself is a series of problems to be solved. You solve one, and then you move on, and another one comes. You solve one, and you move on, and another one comes. I don't know of any people who've been able to go through their life without having some. Our hope is to be knocked down, but not knocked out. There's a lot to learn in life, and the people that learn it best are those who graduate from the university of adversity. Other than Jesus, my big hero in uh, the, the faith in the Bible is Paul. Not because he was a martyr, because, you know, he did die a martyr. Uh, right after he wrote these, these letters... He was taken outside of the walls of the city of Rome, and he was beheaded. But really what impresses me about Paul is his life. You know, when he converted and he became a Christian, all of his Jewish friends hated him. But then when he became a Christian, the Christians, because he had persecuted Christians, suspected him. And then when he started preaching and allowing Gentiles into the faith, all those that didn't like that, they didn't like him either. So he had constant uh, opposition in his life. And he dealt with all of these different adversities over and over. And so we, that, we have this catalog of things that, that happened. Overworked, scourged, five times he had 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, three times shipwrecked, adrift at sea, all these dangers. He went on, and that's why he could write. In that passage that we read, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. There's a modern translation of that by J.B. Phillips. I like it. Same verse. It says this, we are handicapped on all sides, but we are never frustrated. We are puzzled, but never in despair. We are persecuted but we never have to stand alone. We are knocked down, but we are not knocked out. That's the way that we take it. It's a long road. Paul graduated. He had a Ph.D., actually, from the University of Adversity. Napoleon wrote a book for his officers, a, a manual. It was called The Maxims of War. He listed 78 principles, and when you read them, it's kind of amazing how the principles for fighting a successful war are very similar to the principles for living a successful life. There's a lot of overlap there. I've always considered courage to be the first qualification of a good soldier, but Napoleon did not think so. In fact, in the 58th Maxim, he wrote this, The first qualification of a soldier is fortitude under fatigue and privation. Courage is only the second qualification. Poverty and want are the best school for a soldier. 
Because without fortitude to survive the hardships of just getting to the battlefield, the marching, the weather, all of that, without fortitude to survive that, one seldom gets to the time and place where courage is required. One must survive to arrive at the field of battle where courage becomes the primary value. Fortitude is sticking it out, keeping going, not quitting. And for many people, there's not one decisive battle in their life that they fight. It's just a series of small skirmishes along the way. And to have the fortitude, to have whatever problem it is that comes into your life and hits you hard, to have the fortitude to keep on going, to be knocked down, but not knocked out. I see people all the time uh, who are living with slow-moving tragedy life. They're people of great courage. They're people that are dragging sick and crippled bodies from one place to the other. They, they keep on going, even though it's difficult to move and to get out, but they don't let it stop them. They keep on going. I see people juggling emotional wounds and family problems, and they try to keep from falling apart. People who can't find work, who keep on going. People whose children have gone off on the wrong track, but they don't give up on them. They keep on. The list is endless. And when you see people managing hardships in their life, just say, there goes a good soldier. There goes a really, really good soldier. The first virtue is fortitude. Courage comes next. You know, we don't seek out these difficulties. It's not like we look for them so that we can become stronger. They just happen. They just come along in life. The story of uh, President John Kennedy, uh, he was a, a war hero, World War II. He was the captain of this boat, PT-109, and he was attacked, and he ended up saving some of his sailors uh, in a very heroic kind of a way. And, uh, and then later on, there's a story about how this boy who heard all about him got a chance to meet him one day, and he said, President Kennedy... How did you get to be a war hero? And he said, it was really easy. They sank my boat. You don't seek these things out. They just come along and you respond to them, to these difficulties, these problems. One of the people that's a hero to me uh, is a guy named Ben Ware. He was a Presbyterian missionary. Don knew him as well as I did because he taught at the seminary that we went to. He was taken hostage in Lebanon along with Terry Waite. And uh, for a couple of years, he was literally in solitary confinement, chained to a radiator in a room. And uh, he managed to get through that experience and return to a, a wonderful, wonderful life here. And he wrote a book about that experience, and here's what he wrote. When I look back on that time that I was a hostage, I realize now that that was the most growing, positive time in my life. In terms of my character, no, I'd never want to do it again. But I grew so much from that time of adversity. I learned about myself. I drew closer to God. Being a hostage actually made me a better person. Made me a better person. And so today I just want to give a few comments as the way, to the way that we can take this adversity in our life and actually have it turn out to make us better people, stronger people. The first thing that I would advise when you come across these adversities is avoid self-pity. 
You know, self-pity is the most addictive, destructive, and common behavior in the face of adversity. It is a common coping mechanism because it feels so good, and there's such an abundant supply, we never run out. I remember when my girls were small, and one of them would come running up to me with this, this anguished look on their face, and, and Mackenzie would say, Daddy, Shelby hit me! And there was such joy underneath the anguish. There was such joy in being a victim. It felt so good to be a victim, to be aggrieved and have something to complain about. But in the long run, self-pity will do to your spirit what drugs do to your mind and body. Uh, Avoid self-pity. Victor Hugo, the great novelist, uh, was exiled from his homeland of France for 18 years. It was the most painful thing in his life because he loved France. Here he was, the royal dramatist, but because of a political shift in the country, he had to flee and to live on one of the small islands of the English Channel, the Channel Islands. He lived there for 18 years. And every night at sunset, he would climb up to a bluff overlooking the sea. He would look out toward his beloved France. He would say his prayers and meditations. Then he would bend down and take a stone and throw it into the sea. One day, the children who saw this behavior asked him, Why do you throw a stone into the sea every night? He said, It's not a stone, children. It's my self-pity. I am throwing my self-pity into the sea. In those 18 years that he was in exile, he wrote his greatest novels. It was there on that little island that he wrote Les Miserables. It was there on that little island that he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He didn't allow self-pity to take away his spirit. You know, the only way that Nelson Mandela could have walked out of that jail cell after 27 years and not be consumed with anger and rage toward the people who had put him there, the only way that he could walk out with love in his heart was because he failed to give in to self-pity in his life. Second suggestion I would have is to Adopt the attitude that no defeat is final unless you believe it to be. No defeat is final, as long as you won't allow it to be in your mind. The historian Robert Massey talks about William of Orange, who later became king of England uh, with Mary, his queen. But while he was head of the House of Orange, it was said of him that his talent was not in winning battles, for he was frequently beaten. His talent was in surviving defeat. When Louis XIV, the king of France, was on the verge of crushing Holland, it was to the House of Orange that the Hollanders instinctively turned. And so little short William of Orange seemed indifferent to fatigue, was oblivious to fear. He ordered the most incredible solution to this siege that was happening to Amsterdam. He ordered them to cut the dikes. And the water rushed in, and Amsterdam became an island. And uh, the, uh, the French army could only look on in frustration, for they had no boats with which to achieve the victory, which was almost within reach. William did not win the battle, but he saved Amsterdam, and he lived to fight another day. That kind of spirit is admirable. I've heard the story of a, of a kid who had that spirit. He was a high school senior. And he was in the process of applying for colleges, sending his applications in, and he wasn't getting anywhere. 
So he wrote back, Dear admissions officer, I am in receipt of your rejection of my application. As much as I would like to accommodate you, I find I cannot accept it. I have already received four rejections from other colleges, and this number is, in fact, over my limit. Therefore, I must reject your rejection, and as much as this might inconvenience you, I expect to appear for classes on September 18th. I don't know if I'd recommend that as a way to get into college, but I like the spirit of the guy. I like it. In fact, if I was that admissions officer, I might reconsider that guy. We have to understand that, thirdly, way that we get through the adversities in our life is by not doing it alone. We don't go through tough times alone. Don't try to be stoic. Don't try to keep it to yourself. Use the people that are around you, your neighbors, your friends, your family, your church family. Use those people to get through these tough times. We need each other in that sort of a way. You know, when you go to Sequoia National Park, and the, the ranger gives you the guided tour, they point out an interesting fact. These huge, giant sequoia trees have very shallow roots. And you think, what? How in the world can a tree that tall not have a deep root to keep it from blowing over in the wind? But they don't. They have shallow roots that grow, instead of down, they grow out. And sequoias always grow together in a grove. They don't grow individually. And the roots spread out, and they intertwine with the roots of the other trees. So they're all connected together underneath the ground. So that when the wind comes, the sequoias hold each other up. That's how we are to be as God's people, to hold each other up during times of adversity. And the last thing I want you to remember during these tough times is that when it comes down to the end, Remember, God promises to be with us through the difficult times in our life. No, God doesn't protect us. He doesn't keep us from experiencing difficulties, troubles, or problems. That's never been part of the promise. The promise is, I will be with you as you go through those times. I will be with you. You can feel my presence, my courage, my love, and my support. You can do all those things because you're not alone. I am with you at this time. There's a wonderful gospel song that I've always loved by Reverend James Cleveland. It's called No Ways Tired. And I leave you with this. It says, I don't feel no ways tired. I've come too far from where I started from. Nobody told me the road would be easy. But I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. No, I don't believe.